I've done a round the world trip a couple of years ago where I flew from London to LA, then LA to Hawaii, Hawaii, Fiji, Fiji, New Zealand, New Zealand, Australia, Australia, Singapore, Singapore, London. So a full lap of the earth. And yeah, that was all done on standby travel with, with other airlines. The Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast, episode 353. Three million people per year travel between JFK and London Heathrow, which may sound like a lot until you realize that the world's busiest air route has 13 million people flying it per year. Can you guess what cities that air route is between? I'll give you a hint. It's in Asia, but you're still never going to get it. Stick around till the end of the show, and I'll let you know what it is. If you're a pilot like my guest today, Mark, then you're lucky because you don't have to pay for your flights. But if you're like the 99.9% of us, the rest of the world, and you do have to pay for flights, there's still a way to get pretty lucky. And that's to pay way less than most people ever will when it comes to booking their flights. The best way to do that is a new app that we just released. Uh, well, now not just, maybe about a year ago. It's hard to believe that it's been out there that long. It's called Jetto, J-E-T-T-O, and it will send you cheap flight deals directly to your phone. All you do, you sign up, you pick the airports that you're looking for flights out of at any time a really awesome fare. So let's think under $400 to Europe, under $700 to Australia, under $500 to Asia, all of that from the US. When something like that pops up, we will send that right to your phone. You can see all the details there. And if you're feeling frisky and you're like, hey, I want to get on one of these flights, you can book it directly from your phone. All you have to do, go to the app store, J-E-T-T-O, find the Jetto app, download it. And once you do, put in the referral code EPOP. That'll let us know that you came from this awesome podcast and we'll give you a free 14-day trial for our platinum version. So go grab it from the app store, Jetto, J-E-T-T-O, put that referral code in and you'll be booking cheap flights in no time. Hello, travel nerds, and welcome to the Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast, the show that teaches you how to travel more while spending less. I'm your host, Travis Sherry, and joining me today is someone who has been to all seven continents, became a qualified pilot at the age of 22, and has flown over 2 million miles, which is the equivalent of four round trips to the moon, but I don't think he's actually been to the moon yet. We'll, uh, we'll ask him that. Mark of flyingandtravel.com. Mark, thanks for joining me, and welcome. Hi, Travis. Thanks for inviting me on. You, you have not been to the moon, right? You, I, you have like this long list of things you've done. That's not on there yet, right? Uh, that's on the, the wish list. You know, most people have a kind of travel list of countries in the world, right? And yeah, I, I guess the moon is 
once we get into sort of space tourism, then yeah, that, that's an eventual goal. But it's a nice, it's a nice yardstick for people to, uh, when people say, how long have you been flying? And I say, well, I've done uh, over 5,000 hours. It's like, well, what does that mean? Yeah. So I've been to the moon a few times in, <laughs> in, in my plane. That's awesome. Fun fact, we're over 340 episodes in on this podcast. And yet this is the very first time we've had a pilot on the show. So, Mark, congrats! You're helping us break new ground here. I don't know. I don't know how it happened that we never had anyone on, but I'm excited to have you on and to give everyone a, a little bit of background. Mark, you and I met at TravelCon, and I just knew you. Like, I wanted to have you come on because you're like, I'm a pilot. I thought, all right, this is cool. I don't know how it happened that we've never had a pilot on. So today's going to be a fun show. Basically, I'm just going to pick your brain, Mark, about what it's like to be a pilot and kind of day-to-day, what are some cool things about being a pilot, some not-so-great things that, that you know regular travels travelers wouldn't even think about, some tips and tricks for cheaper travel. And of course, I want to ask you, like, you know, what annoys you about passengers, all that kind of stuff that, uh, that we're going to pull the curtain back a little bit on being a pilot. But first, let's back it up a bit. Where did your love of travel come from? Where, like, how did this manifest itself in you? Uh, yeah, good question. So uh, I think I was um, I was about 16. I was at school and they did like a school kind of organized trip abroad. Um, so I went to Borneo, uh, Malaysia, the Malaysian side of Borneo. And that that was it. I, I went. It was my first time kind of going east, uh, certainly going to Southeast Asia. And at that age, I just I just sort of fell in love. I, I got hooked on the travel bug going to a new culture. Um, the scenery of Borneo is absolutely stunning. I mean, most people think it's just kind of rainforest, but there's these beautiful and amazing limestone caves. Um, it's got the tallest mountain, Mount Kinabalu, that we climbed. So so that was my first proper introduction, I think, to proper travel, aside from you know hol- family holidays to Florida or, or just going to Europe, but but it really was that th- thrown into the deep end, I think, at quite a young age. And actually, that that was a trip that I had to pay for myself. I, it wasn't funded by my parents or anything. Um, there was a lot of kind of entrepreneurial things that I had to do to raise money. Like when I was 16, I sort of set up my own little gardening business, like where, where I lived. And so uh, I was just cycling on my bike, going between houses saying, can I do some weeding for you? And and just lots of little odd jobs like that. I was teaching a few people how to use like Microsoft Word and, and uh, how to shop on Amazon and things like this back in the day. So that it was a kind of self-made trip for me. Um, and I think that's what added to that sense of uh, fulfillment and the sense that this was like a travel bug and, and just doing this is something that I really wanted to do. But that's that's probably not where, I mean, that's where I got my travel bug from in terms of wanting to visit other cultures and different countries. Um, but maybe not where my flying the passion to kind of be a pilot. I, it, it wasn't like I wanted to travel, right, I'll be a pilot. The piloting thing sort of came before that. Okay, so we'll, and we'll dive into that in a second. First, I want to know what, what school did you go to that's taking the kids to Borneo? Because, you know, I you hear a lot um, for us, uh, you know, in, in the East Coast of the U.S. is where I grew up. People are like, all right, we might take a trip. The Spanish club is going to Spain, and that's like this crazy exotic place. But your school is going to Borneo, a place that, probably a lot of people wouldn't even be able to put on like point out on the map so that's is that normal for 
for the area you grew up in, the school you grew up in, or was that this one-off that was just one crazy teacher's like, no, we're going to Borneo. I always wanted to go here. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. Um, so for my school, we actually it was an it was an outside company that came in and they kind of pitched this type activity to um, lots of different schools. It's called World Travel Expeditions. I'm not sure if they're they're outside the UK yet, but they were really focused on personal development. It, it wasn't like just come to Borneo, you're going to have an amazing time. It's a great holiday, have fun. It was all about, you know, saving up the money, coming up with ideas to rate, like we did cake sales and things like that and events to actually, you know, raise the money ourselves. And it was about teamwork and leadership and some of these really important skills that probably don't get taught in schools, which is why outside organizations often come in. Um, but having said that, I do know of, of friends who have been to schools and, you know, those schools. Yeah. Science teacher goes, yeah, I really want to go to Borneo. So let's get the kids to pay. <laughs> right. Right. Let's get the kids to pay. And for every five kids, we can bring one adult. Right. And like, of course, yeah. science teacher, or the history teacher is the first person to go. And then their their spouse might come and they're getting this free trip. What a what a nice little gig they've got there. Um, all right. We talked about the, the piloting or you brought that up. When did that start? Because you mentioned that 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 might have even been before this travel bug hit you was the fact that you might want to be a pilot when you grew up. Yeah, I, I was probably about sort of 13, 14. And, and in the UK, um, where I live and, and brought up in school, we have something called um, the Air Cadets, which is like the Air Force, but for kind of kids. You, you, I'm sure you guys have it in, in the US. So I kind of did that. And um, when we got to go flying and gliding and again, lots of travel and, and other experiences like that. So that was kind of my first proper uh, introduction to flying um, and uh, sort of once once you do that you, if you think it's a fit it, it sort of it becomes a passion of yours um, and so I sort of followed that I I didn't go straight into flying from school often um, a lot of people will do that they'll jump into flight school when they're only 18 which is something you can do out here in the UK it's a little bit different the pilot training system is a little bit different in the US um, but uh, I actually went on to university to read engineering, so not uh, not flying related. Um, but when I was at university, again, there was a sort of the Air Force equivalent club, which was I was getting paid to learn to fly. I mean, it was brilliant. I was I was 18. I was I was studying, obviously, my degree in engineering. And then outside of uh, lectures, I got to go flying with the RAF, uh, which was like, you, you couldn't be taught a skill from anyone better, right? That they are, they've got the best flight instructors, the best equipment. Um, and so that was a great way for me to kind of start. Did you have to then serve any time in the actual, in the actual military or was it you're a civilian, you're getting trained by them, you're getting paid. Cause this sounds like a cool gig. And then somehow you got out of actual serving time or did you then go into the military? Yeah, so it was really just a club at university. So there was no, um, I wasn't tied into serving. I, I have a lot of friends who who did, um, some who sort of chose to go into the RAF. And one's like a test pilot. I've got a few helicopter pilots, uh, friends, and uh, a few in the Navy and the Army as well, the Army Air Corps. So, uh, yes, university does select a, a lot of people to go off into the armed forces in, in the UK. But, no, I didn't have to. Um, 
and I sort of followed uh, the commercial route and I had to go to flight school. That sounds like a pretty cool gig then that you, because I know in the US and, and my knowledge is limited. I have a few friends who are pilots and each one of them actually went through the military to get their training and then serve time. Some of them, you know, will serve out their 20, 25 years and then, you know, and be younger and then retire. Some of them, you know, serve however many they have to serve seven and then, and then get out. Um, is that common in the UK as well, where most people will get their training and then go that route? Or is it kind of split between like the people that you knew, people going into commercial, maybe half, and then people going into the military half? Yeah, it, it is kind of like that. I mean, the training that I did at university flying wise was was just private pilot flying. It, it was very basic. And I, I didn't get a license or anything from that training. Um, but yes, the ones that do go into the military, there is return of service. And it's, it's actually much longer, I think, in the UK. It's it's 12 years you have to do sort of serving um, before you could then leave. Obviously, they invest a lot of money in you becoming a pilot. I think it's about two million pounds is is the average for a military pilot. So it's quite a lot, especially if you go on to fly fast jets. And obviously, that's taxpayer money that they want a good return on that investment. So yeah, in the UK, it's 12 or 16 years, whereas I think in the US, you could sort of join the Air Force um, go through college, have it all supported. And you only have to do maybe six six years or so, I think, in, in yeah, the I US. Sounds about right. Now, after you went and were done university, you said you had to go to flight school. Was that paid out of pocket or was there some way that you were able to get that comped as well? No. So um, this is the unfortunate situation these days, really, since September 11th. So um, before 2001, there was uh, airlines sort of queuing up to find uh, young people that want to be pilots and they would just put them on their own course, um, all paid for. So it was about £100,000 an airline would invest in, e in each student. And that was great for the student. They, they would actually get paid on one of these courses. They'd get a very basic salary to cover costs. But the, the flying training was, was paid for. Then September 11th happened and uh, that basically obviously killed the aviation market for about five years. And obviously airlines weren't recruiting pilots, they were all downsizing. Um, and what happened in the aftermath of that is that airlines then decided, actually, um, we're not going to pay uh, student pilots, we're not going to cover their fees, they're going to have to pay for it themselves. Because they actually found that there was a lot of, you know, a lot of young people want to be pilots. So there was a lot of people, you know, they've, it's always been in high demand. Like, well, why should we be paying all this money? So unfortunately, um, it took, took a rather backward step. Because what's happened now is that really, uh, to become a pilot these days, um, and, I, and I use this sort of term generally, because as long as you've got the money to be a pilot and okay, there's some skills that you need and, and medical and stuff like that. But, but really the pool of candidates to become pilots. Now you have to have the finance and you have to have money. And, not, and you know, most of the time that's rich parents. And unfortunately that means the talent pool to become a pilot is way smaller than it should be. So if, if you don't have the funds to become a pilot, you can't. That's, that's the unfortunate situation that, that we're now in, um, which means we don't attract, um, you know, the best quality of candidates. We don't attract the best 
cross-section of society. You know, women, female pilots are still in a, in a huge minority. Um, I'm, you know, and, and also people from disadvantaged backgrounds and low-income families. They don't have the opportunity these days to uh, become an airline pilot. That's, that's the unfortunate truth. And that's what I don't like about the way that the, the system has, has become. Yeah, you're pulling from, what, 5% of the population, maybe, you know, depending on where you are in the world, a, a very small subsection. When you were going through your training, then, was there any time that you kind of thought, nah, this isn't for me, like, I've put in this time, and I've worked through, but I, I don't actually want to do this? Or was it or has it always been this, yeah, I like this. I really enjoy this and I'm working my way through and now obviously you've been a pilot for a while. Is that is that how it worked or or did you have those second thoughts at any point? No, I, I'm quite lucky, I think. I, I It's something that um, I set my uh, eyes on and, and I had a kind of real hunger for it. I had a, I had a very strong desire to achieve it. Um, and there are conversely there are people that that go on that want to become pilots um you know and for various reasons they end up dropping out they don't it doesn't quite fit uh, the problem these days is we have this closed flight deck door it's a locked door now again post september 11th um and it means that the general public don't really get a great insight into what being an airline pilot actually is um, and uh, again, work experience opportunities don't really exist to go go sit on a flight deck and, and, and watch a flight. So it does mean that there are people who think they want to be a pilot, but actually once they do all that training and spend all that money, they actually realize it's not for them. So again, it, it's, it's, a, it's a lose-lose situation, unfortunately, the, the way that uh, it's quite a closed off culture being a pilot and and it's maybe quite a small kind of maybe viewed as an elite group of people and we're not able to really show to the world what we do and, and the job of being a pilot and that i think is really important to young people they don't get to see that these days yeah what is it like being a pilot what is your like how what is your life structure like if you could walk us through I don't want to say day by day, but almost like week by week or month by month. How is your schedule set up? Because you're right. Like I, you, you hear about it, you see it in the movies and you, you know what a pilot does. Okay. They fly a plane, but I don't really have an idea of what your real life looks like. And I'm sure it's much different than what a lot of people think. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, our lives are basically, uh, determined by our roster. So we we get a monthly schedule, and and this works across all all airlines. Um, it, it's the rosters are basically dictated by the commercial needs of the airline, right? They've got a network, um, they've got a certain number of planes, and therefore they need a certain number of pilots to crew those planes going to those destinations. Um, now the airline that I work for, I'm very lucky. We have a system where we get to choose where we get to go to. Um, and when I uh, met you at uh, Matt's TravelCon, I was actually, I was there on a layover, right? So TravelCon was in Austin, Texas, and I managed to basically tell the computer system that does the rostering, I'd like to be in Houston because that's the nearest city that, that we fly to in Texas. Uh, I want to be on a layover in uh, Houston. So I flew the plane from London to Houston, then got in my hire car and drove, you know, two hours to Austin to the Texas, uh, to the uh, conference for a few days. And so 
so really, yes, our, our lives are determined by our rosters. Um, and uh, it depends um, what type of pilot you are. So in Europe, we really have uh, European pilots, so short haul pilots. And then we have our long haul pilots. I mean, it's kind of the same in the US. You obviously have local airlines, um, maybe someone like JetBlue and, you know, they fly to sort of Caribbean routes, but they don't fly to Singapore. Right. Right. Whereas in the UK, you know, it's Europe is on our doorstep. So you're either doing European short haul flights, which are maybe two or three hours long. And you'll often do two or three flights of those in a day. Okay. Whereas if you're a long haul pilot, you are doing one flight in a day. You're doing a nine or 10 hour day. So when I flew from uh, London to Houston, that was it. That was my one day of, of work. And then uh, once you uh, get there, you have generally 24 hours off in, in long haul. In short haul, when we're flying around Europe, it's generally about 12 hours off. So you just just a night off. Um, but with long haul, we fly there, get get a 24-hour labor, and then we get to fly back the next day. But um, So this is the less glamorous side, which is we have to do night flights. <laughs> so we are up all night long flying through the night. Um, and, you know, for anyone that's ever done, I don't know, like babysitting till the early hours of the morning, you know what it's like. You know, you've got those heavy eyelids uh, and... Uh, a, a large intake of caffeine to get you uh, through the night. But that that's really the downside um, to the job. We, you, you mentioned, obviously, the good side is we get to go to some fabulous places around the world. Um, I fly to the Far East. I fly to um, South Africa. We go to the, we do a lot of Caribbean flights. So I was just in St. Lucia a few days ago. Some really nice beaches there. Great weather. Um, you know, we, we fly all the, all, the, all the way across the world. So it's a great job. But yes, um, you, you've got to uh, do the bad bit as well as, as the, the fun, good bit. And yeah, night flights are probably the, the worst part of it. Do you get to switch? Like, will you do long haul and then some short haul or are you are you pigeonholed into all right mark's a long haul pilot so he's always doing long haul yeah so that's a that's a good question actually um we're pigeonholed into the aircraft type that we fly so often this you know people think oh we fly lots of different planes but basically when you're an airline pilot you have your pilot's license which is called a commercial pilot license and on top of your commercial pilot's license, you get a rating to fly a specific type of aircraft. Basically, aircraft these days, you know, they're very complex. You've got to know the aircraft equipment, but it's also how you fly it and how you program the computer. And they're very different. Um, these days, most airlines fly either Airbus or Boeing, and they're built very differently. I mean, the mechanics of flying is still the same. You know, you pull back on the stick. and, and <laughs> That's and the all you do, guys. Up. Just pull back on down. the stick. <laughs> Absolutely. You push down on the, you push down on the stick and uh, the houses get bigger, as they like to say. <laughs> so it's the mechanics of flying. It's, it, yeah, the skill of flying is, is generally the same. But it's, uh, it's like trying to, um, you know, learn Apple Macintosh versus using, um, you know, Microsoft Windows. They're, they're very, they're two very different operating systems. And so when you're a pilot, they want you just to know kind of like one system at one time. Um, otherwise, it would get a little bit complicated and you would kind of forget things. So we are basically pigeonholed by our aircraft type. So I fly the Boeing 777. 
which is a long haul, long range aircraft. And therefore I end up flying pretty much long haul, uh, the long range routes. We do sometimes do a little bit of short haul flights if the airline uh, has got a gap in the schedule or they are doing aircraft placements or for example we have a big engineering base in ireland so i'm often flying over there um empty aircraft with no passengers on uh, or if they go to the paint shop obviously planes they still go for a paint shop uh, so sometimes you end up flying an empty plane to the paint shop and, and it's there for a few days and, and you fly it back um so yeah i get a whole range but i've done both so I, when i started my piloting career i started on short haul which was just flying around Europe. And they do that for pilots because they want you to do lots of flights. So when I was a short haul pilot, I was doing maybe two or three flights a day. Uh, you know, over a month, that maybe 30 flights in a month. As a long haul pilot, I do maybe, I do sort of five trips a month, which is really, you know, two flights a trip. So it's, I do 10 flights in a month now as a long haul pilot. And I don't get to land every flight. Uh, you know, do the takeoff and landing as well. Whereas when you're short haul, you're kind of, you're doing two or three flights a day. You're definitely doing a takeoff and landing because we split, we split this, uh, the roles basically between take, uh, I guess most people don't really think about it. Like who's landing the plane. There's, there's two pilots. They both land at the same time. Do they take turns? Like, <laughs> you know, yeah, that's a good that question. So, do you, I guess you do take turns Is that, or, or is like, yeah, tell us how that works Just, and tell us why there are two pilots i assume for safety reasons but maybe there's other reasons too yeah absolutely yeah so why do we have two pilots yeah ab absolutely um for safety reasons um and it's it's just a very complex machine uh with a lot of different moving parts and um the reason we always have two people is because of sort of human error um just one person doing one task um, is going to have what we call the human error. The, the human brain, you know, has evolved thousands of years. We've only been putting humans in very complex aircraft, you know, flying on the edge of space for like the last 50 years, right? So the human brain, unfortunately, um, uh, has not evolved to keep up with modern technology. And so that's why we have two people. Plus, it would get a little bit lonely if it was just like one pilot, right? Um, but no, obviously, uh, you know, going back 50 years ago, I mean, there wasn't just two pilots. There was, you'd have two pilots, you'd have an engineer, there'd be like a radio operator up there as well. So, so 50 years ago, there was, you know, a big team of maybe four or five people on the flight deck operating the flight. But these days, those roles of sort of radio operator and the engineer have kind of been taken over by automation and uh, by computers. So then when you have the two pilots on there, you, you mentioned, let's say you do 10 flights a month. Are How many of those are you landing and taking off? Or or is it split? Like you take off, so you you do the pull up and he does the push down or she does the push down. Like how do you, how do you split those roles between pilot and the co-pilot? Yeah, absolutely. So you've just mentioned kind of two uh, names of, of the way we refer to pilots, uh, pilot, co-pilot, kind of captain and, and co-pilot. And so a lot of people often think the captain kind of does everything and the co-pilot or the first officer is just sort of there to pull all the levers and pr press a few buttons, right, under the commands of, of the captain. But the way it actually works is um, we have two pilots, we work as a team, 
but one pilot will basically take that flight. They, they have that sector. They are, um, even though I'm a first officer, I'm not a captain yet, I'm just a first officer, I'm a co-pilot, I will do that flight almost as the captain, but he, he is... He is still the captain. He is still the legal authority on the aircraft. But I will take that flight from London to Houston and I will kind of do everything. I will do the takeoff. I do all the briefings. I will do the announcement to the passengers when they're getting on board. You know, remember to keep your seatbelt fastened at all times. And I will kind of lead the flight and and um, uh, do the landing and, and, the, and the other pilot will do the approach. So we basically take it in turns. And then on the way home, we would just reverse our roles. So the captain gets to do the takeoff and the landing and he would do all the briefings and again, speak to all the passengers. And uh, really that's how it works. We, we have one person that does the flight and the other person is there to kind of assist um, and provide that kind of team role. So I always thought this was interesting and I, I don't know how much you could tell us or not, but when you, you have, when you're working together, like you have a, a pilot and a co-pilot and you guys are sitting there and one person's in charge and, and taking lead what is the relationship generally between pilots like are there some people that you just get put on a plane with you like oh no i have to fly with this guy i mean obviously you're going to be more friendly with certain people that's just how it is in any profession in any job there's certain people you're you like more you're more friendly with but is there usually a pretty decent camaraderie between the pilots and also then going even further and this and the flight attendants and the whole crew or is it is it kind of usually like all right this is my job i'm here and when i land i'm not really hanging out with these people what what have you found for yourself and for pilots and and crews in general yeah so i think the interesting thing about being a pilot is actually when when you turn up for work generally i'm working with people i've never met before even really? though I yeah absolutely and and this is the really remarkable thing when you think of I don't know like a surgeon working in in surgery you know he's got his anesthetist and the nurses that and they know each other's intricacies and they know you know that uh, they always play the same music and stuff like that but no actually being a pilot certainly for the for an air, a very large airline that I work for um yeah the first time uh when i go go into work i would generally be the first time that i work with those other crew members same with you know the cabin crew and and the pilot um when i was in short haul i was um actually at one of our smaller bases which was at london gatwick and there we only had maybe um there was about 100 pilots down there so that that actually i did fly with you know, sort of regular faces on, on a regular basis um, but long haul, we have um, on the triple seven that I fly, we have 600 co-pilots and about uh, 400 captains. That's a thousand people. Um, and I'm only going to work doing a work trip maybe four or five times a month. So, you know, I really don't fly with the same people, which which brings some interesting points because you think, well, how can you fly a plane when, you know, you're in a small team and, uh, you know, it different personalities and how do you all operate and do the same job without knowing each other um, and the key to that is standardization and we we have this thing called standard operating procedures which is basically uh, the instruction manual on how to fly an airliner 
so everyone knows how to um, operate and we all have, you know, the same language and uh, the same sort of lingo. So everyone knows. So when I say gear up, you know, they know I've got to put the wheels up. And, and so that's how it works. And so you can turn up to work with people, with complete strangers and you can, and you can work, um, you know, as a team to some extremely high standards. Uh, and this is the, you know, we in aviation look at loads of other professions around the world, things like um, Formula One pit stop crews, right? Or as I say, um, uh, air ambulance, you know, sort of helicopter medical evacuation uh, organizations. And how do those close working teams, you know, work together? And how do we do it with a workforce that is spread all around throughout the world? And again, you, you only fly with the same pilot sort of <laughs> maybe twice if you're lucky. Um, so, yeah, it, it brings some really interesting uh, points. And um, you have to sort of judge really the personality of the people that you work with. If I turn up to um, a flight uh, with a captain who's maybe very introverted, you know, the way that I work with them is going to be very different to a a captain who's very extroverted and it's actually a very like people underestimate how hard it actually is being a first officer because we we don't have a command gradient being pilots but you know the captain is the kind of legal authority and and it is his leadership that that we follow but yeah there's there's a really important balance that we have to strike in terms of you know, pleasing everyone and, and again, different personalities. You, you've got to kind of be careful as to, uh, I, I mean, you hear in the news, you know, I think there was uh, maybe a flight from India and I think they punched each other or something. You know, you could get into quite a heated debate, right, um, up there. I mean, we've got like Brexit. So it's not, you know, in, in the UK. So that's not really a discussion that you want to have, you know, or, or maybe in the U, in the US, you know, if you've got a pro-Trump versus, uh, you know, right. sparks can fly, right? And especially at 30,000 feet. Yeah, there's certain things you're like, all right, we're definitely not talking about this. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll touch on sports, probably not religion, hopefully not politics, right? You go through your checklist. Now, is that the same then? Because like, this is shocking to me. And I guess when you laid out the numbers, it makes sense. You have a thousand people people flying these triple um, sevens and you're only flying five different trips a month and you add that up and you're like, okay, that's, yeah, that's not a lot of times you're going to run into people. I never thought of that. I kind of just assumed it was like, oh, I know this pilot, I fly with him. Like, not that you always flew with the exact same people, but that maybe it was more like you did the same routes over and over and over again with the same people, which I guess happens, as you mentioned, a little more on short haul than long haul. Do the crews typically like work together then or they also will you have flight attendants who have never met each other working on the same plane or are they a little more in chunks where they take you know they they see each other more often uh no it it tends to be the same thing with with the cabin crew again you know there's maybe twenty thousand you know cabin crew i mean obviously on a flight there's maybe two pilots whereas obviously on with the cabin crew there's like 10 crew so there's sort of more chance of them running into the same people more often just because there's going to be more people per flight. Um, and they sort of work, you know, they tend to work more hours as well than, than the pilots as well. Um, but no, they, you know, they generally, again, it's you bring 12 people <laughs> together as a team and, and really they've never met each other. 
Uh, it's remarkable how, you know, again, how we can work together as team uh, and, and a sort of team working effect. And um, again, we all work to standard procedures. Um, same with the cabin crew. You know, they uh, security check is a security check. Um, it, you know, when they come through the cabin, they're checking uh, when we put the seatbelt sign on, you know, checking everyone's got the seatbelts fastened for turbulence, you know. That's the same check that every crew member does. If we have a medical incident on board, you know, the, the crew members are all trained to provide the same kind of level of first aid, um, the way that they handle uh, open the door, for example, um, and all the emergency procedures, because that's a whole kind of thing that we don't we train for it all. But you never kind of see it in action. Right. And that's so important. Um if you had to prepare for like an emergency landing, because that could happen straight away. I mean, you, we, we turn up to the briefing room, there's 12 of us, we've all never met, we get on board the flight, the passengers get on and then we take off and you could be straight into an emergency, you know, and you've never met these people before, but you've all got to work to the same kind of standard. Um, and, and that's the amazing thing about aviation. And I, and I know there's a lot of industries that, that are, you know, look into aviation now and, and are trying to take the techniques and the skills that we've developed. Yeah, that's it's fascinating. I give I give even more credit now to pilots and cabin crew, knowing that they've for a lot of them, this will be the first time they've met or maybe they've seen each other once like six years ago. You know, obviously, it's not this thing that you've been working towards together over and over and over and over and kind of gotten down pat with each other. It's all because it's standardized. That's that's pretty, that's very, very impressive. So I guess then that leads me, though, to my question of if you get lonely then, because you said, so back to the schedule, you said, all right, you fly, let's say you fly long haul, you fly to Houston from London, you got 24 hours in Houston, then you have to go back. Again, I assumed everyone kind of knew each other. So it was like, hey, let's go out for dinner. Let's, uh, is it like, will you generally hang out with the people that maybe you flew over with? Or is it a lot of, okay, I'm in Houston uh, you know, I'm going to go do my solo thing or, or hopefully you're somewhere maybe a little cooler in Houston. No hate on Houston, but you know, you're somewhere else. Do you generally then go do and go do your own thing? Yeah, it, there's a mixture really. Um, people kind of do both. Um, you know, when I met you at TravelCon, I was to the crew, see you guys, I'm off to get my rental car and I'm off to drive to Austin. Um, so, you know, some people have got, uh, you know, obviously they'll go visit friends, they've got people around that they go visit, um, or, you know, they're into sports. We've got some pilots that love skydiving. So they, they bid for Florida trips and they'll, they'll go skydiving on their layover. Um, but yeah, no, there's, there's a good sense of camaraderie and there's a, you know, everyone's away from home. Um, so it, it's great. Everyone likes to hang out with each other and we'll all go for a drink or, um, go to a restaurant and eat together. Um, and then when we have these long trips where we maybe got two or three days down route in a destination, then we'll organize like a boat trip or we'll go to an amusement park. So, so absolutely, you know, there, there's that big, uh, sense of camaraderie, especially at Christmas. I, I did a Christmas trip. So away from home, right across the Christmas period, I was in St. Lucia and, um, we, uh, there was two crews there. So there was two flights on the layover. And so there's about, uh, 25 of us in total. And we cooked a Christmas <laughs> dinner with turkey and stuffing and all the trimmings um, in one of the apartments that we're staying at. So, you know, that's that sense of being away from friends and family and, you know, absolutely make the most of it. 
Yeah, speaking just real quick, I wanted to get back to the schedule a little bit, and then we'll, we'll get into a few more perks of being pilot. You mentioned you have like this time off in between. Maybe it's 24 hours. Maybe it's a little longer at certain times. What does it then look like when you get back? So let's say you, you take this round trip and you had 24 hours in between to hang out wherever it was that you were in the middle of it. And then how quick do you get on another flight or do you have three days off? Like how how is that balanced? And also, as you mentioned, with the the night and day and flying overnight, how do you like do you feel like you can ever have a normal schedule back home in London or is it just pretty much chaotic because your schedule is always changing? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, so in terms of um, how the roster is balanced, so yeah, absolutely, we do, uh, pilot, long-haul pilot does normally maybe four or five work trips a month, and those work trips, uh, generally three days, or if you've got like a longer trip, somewhere like Singapore, Buenos Aires, five days long, um, so you have 24, 48 hours down route, generally, and then when you come home, um, it's normally maybe three days off. Sometimes it's two. Uh, depends on sort of what destinations we go to. Um, we have uh, sort of legal minimum number of days off that we have to have, especially after very big time zone differences. If we've been in Singapore, which for us is like an eight hour time zone difference, our body has started to acclimatize to the eight hour time zone. Therefore, we need a certain number of days off. So it's generally, it's sort of maybe two or four days off. Um, but it, we do get more days off, I think, than, you know, any one in a normal job in terms of, if you think of weekends, there's probably what, 10 days off in a month. Generally, I probably get about 15 or 16 days off in a month. So I do, I do get a few more sort of days off at, at home. But, uh, as you said, with the, the night flight, um, and things like that, you, you, when you get home, you've been up all night long. Uh, so you end up feeling a bit like a zombie for sort of one or two days, sort of getting rid of the, the jet lag and, and really just being up all night uh, does take sort of two days to kind of fully recover. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it's nice and balanced. We, we do get a nice mixture of, of being away and it's nice to have time down route in some really nice destinations. But, yeah, we do get a nice balance of, of time off. Otherwise, I think it would be unsustainable for us to have just – one or two days off between flights, it, it, it would just be too, too grueling. Um, it, it, is, it is hard work physically, uh, being up at like 30,000 feet and, and being up there all night. Yeah. So, all right. Speaking of jet lag, because I, I didn't think about this, but do you have tips and tricks that you use or you picked up from other pilots or other crew members to, to deal with this? Because you're crossing time zones all the time. And so you... Yeah, and sometimes you're acclimatizing your body for a day or two. Sometimes you're not. Do do you have something you do or that works that you've seen work for you? Uh, yeah, I mean, sleep. <laughs> sleep is the key to, to everything. Um, and actually, being flexible with with sleep, being able to sleep anywhere helps. And you know, this might shock you and your your listeners, but we sleep on the flight deck. I, I'm so not most shocked people by don't that. Know that. Okay, I, so, I, all right. I think I heard that somewhere before, so I'm not totally shocked. But okay, yeah. So absolutely, whilst you guys are there enjoying your flight, one of us can be. Uh, we put our chair into full recline mode and we sleep. <laughs> Simple as that. I mean, we limit it to about 45 minutes, um, which is is really a nap. 
Um, we don't want to go into deep sleep because um, it, obviously it, you have sort of changes in your brain and, and when you wake up, you're really groggy and your senses are quite bad. Um, uh, again, not to shock people, but there was someone I think who woke, who went for sleep for a little bit too long, woke up, looked out the window, saw a really bright light, grabbed the controls, put the plane into a dive and it turned out it was just mercury and sort of mercury was above the horizon. It was really shining quite bright in the sky. Yeah. So that's why you can't sleep too long. It puts you into like sleep apnea. And uh, so, yeah, we, we have um, snoozes, uh, power naps, um, certainly on our flights. But yeah, preparing for like a night flight, I will sleep for maybe two or three hours before I go to work. Um, but that's tough, you know, going to sleep in uh, maybe midday on, on your body clock. I mean, who goes to sleep like a midday and you're trying to get a decent sleep? So you you learn lots of techniques like getting a really good eye shade. Um, some people adjust well to sleeping in really cold environments. Like I'll put the air conditioning on quite high and, and sort of snuggle up in a duvet and that tends to help, you know, go to sleep. There's some really good apps these days. Um, I don't know if you guys use Calm or Headspace. They kind of play like soothing music and bedtime stories, um, things like that. But, but it is the key to jet lag is really sort of quality of, of sleep. Um, and the key to that is actually your um, circadian rhythm, which is your body clock. So being able to know what stage your body clock is, because your body clock will adjust. It um, adjusts sort of... Uh, for every uh, two hours of time zone difference that you go across the world, so for example, Singapore for us is eight hours. For every two hours, um, you'll you sort of change like an hour. Um, so uh, what that really means is, um, if you're there for four days, you're eventually going to get onto Singapore local time. And so the circadian rhythm moves with that. So we feel really sleepy at 3 a.m. or 3 p.m. It's like biologically programmed into us. It's like hormones and chemicals get released in our bloodstream. That's what makes you really drowsy and, and fall asleep. So you can kind of hack that a little bit because if you're going to feel really sleepy at 3 a.m. and 3 p.m., um, generally anywhere in the world you go on any time zone, you, you can find, you know, a good space to at least get a four or five hour decent sleep. So when I go to Japan, which is completely the opposite, it's like 12 hours out and, it, and it's quite tough. Um, yeah, I am, I am sleeping at three o'clock in the afternoon on my UK body time, but obviously in Japan, it's like three o'clock in the morning. So it is circadian rhythm is, is and sleep is like the, the key to that. And to help with that, there's loads of I've got some articles on my website, I think flyingandtravel.com, where we've got like top tips for staying sure. healthy on flights. Cool. We'll link all that up in the show notes. I love that. And yeah, jet lag is one of those things people ask me a lot. And I'm like, I, sometimes I beat it, sometimes I don't. Um, you know, and, and certainly I think you're right with trying to get the sleep in when you can and making sure when you get it in, it's quality. It's not. It's not, yeah, you're trying to set yourself up for, you know, with a good eye mask or earplugs, whatever, even basic stuff like that can really, really help. What are some of the awesome perks of being a pilot? Obviously, the big one, getting to go a bunch of different places that, that you might not be able to see because you're seeing so many because you're flying quite a bit. Also, getting to go there cheap or, or free if you're the one flying the plane or technically, I guess, getting paid to go there. Um what else that, that we might not think of of being a pilot that are kind of these really cool things that you get to experience or, or get given to you if, if that happens? 
yeah, I mean, I think the lifestyle is is kind of what attracts people. I, I didn't want to do a desk job. Um, and so flying really is that. And in London, uh, this time of year, it's quite gray and drizzly and it gets dark very early. As soon as you get on board a plane, you know, you burst through those clouds and it's blue sky and it's like, wow, you know, it is a different world up there. So that is, that's the sort of, uh, you know, and the lifestyle as well, the schedule and okay, I, I have a strange roster and I, I often lose weekends and it means, you know, if I was in a football club or something, I couldn't play football every Monday night, like most normal regular people do. But you know, I have that kind of real uh, variety in my life in terms of the schedule and the different places that I can go. So so really, I think one of the best perks of being a pilot is the lifestyle. It's not going to fit everyone. Uh, you know, some people, they just want to do nine to five Monday to Friday. I don't. I, I, I absolutely love what I do. And, and I love flying on like a Sunday evening, even if it's a night flight. I, I, I love it. So, and as you mentioned, the travel. Um, and actually when I um, joined, uh, when I started as a pilot, training to be a pilot, I didn't really appreciate the travel side that much. And I don't just mean the fact that I get to go to nice places, the fact that we have like a staff travel system. <laughs> so this is sort of one of the best travel hacks in the world, really, is if you work for an airline, you get um, sort of standby travel perk which means you can pretty much go anywhere in the world um you know for a very cheap price but you've got super flexibility like i could book a ticket tomorrow um and go to hong kong um or go to some really random place in china and it just wouldn't cost me very much um and it's the fact that i could kind of book it tomorrow sure i might be sat on a jump seat but it's that flexibility so the travel um, and, the, and the fact that we get that. And, and there's lots of other little perks as well. A lot of sort of hotels know that, know that we do last minute deals and, and we get last minute flights. So they tend to give us quite good rates as well, along with car hire, um, things like that. So if you love to travel, yeah, join an airline. And you don't even need to be a pilot. You could just work in the office, right? And, and you still get these perks. Ah, okay. Now we're talking. So I guess anyone who works for an airline will experience similar perks as you do, e even though, like, because I'm looking at a hierarchy, right? And, and pilot would be high up there, I, I, I would guess, as like a hierarchy in an airline. But everyone else on the airline gets similar perks, if not the same. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Everyone gets um, access to rebate travel, as, as it's called, kind of standby travel. And and that's pretty much every airline in the world that, that has uh, sort of standby rights. So obviously, airlines, they want to fill those extra seats. They, they want to go full. Um, and we reciprocate a lot with different airlines. So I can fly like with Fiji Airways um, and they reciprocate with the airline that, that I work with. So there is a kind of whole global network of airlines that we can fly all, all around the world. And I've done that. I've done a round the world trip a couple of years ago where I flew from um, London to LA, then LA to Hawaii, Hawaii, Fiji, Fiji, New Zealand, New Zealand, Australia, Australia, Singapore, Singapore, London. So a full lap of the earth. And yeah, that was all done on standby travel with, with other airlines, which is great. And as I say, that 
that is definitely you know one of the best perks and again you don't need to be flying staff you don't need to be a pilot or, or cabin crew member to maybe get those perks you just have to work work for an airline nice all right so then the, the follow-up question to that becomes befriending a someone who works for an airline is it possible and i don't want everyone crushing mark with with uh uh, request here, but is it possible for you to hook up friends and family? Like, should I be grooming my son, who's one year old, to start working in the airline soon so I can get hooked up? Or is that kind of a myth? Uh, no, that is right. We do have, um, again, most airlines have sort of friends and family benefits uh, for the staff member. So, yeah, they, they get either reduced travel or free tickets. Um, and uh, yeah, so every airline's sort of different, but yeah, in general, in, in the aviation, yeah, and parents as well, they they can get special deals. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, that is talk about a travel hack. I mean, we talk about frequent fly miles, like for us normal people, that's kind of the thing. All right, this can get you free flights, but yeah, here Mark can just be like, all right, I'm going to Fiji tomorrow. It's really, I got four days. It's dark and gray in London. Boom, I'm gonna go fly over there. That's that's pretty pretty awesome how is the com like what is the camaraderie like between airlines and because we talked about the crews and stuff like that you guys not knowing each other when you fly but there's this you know you're all working towards the same goal and you kind of come on and and work this high level what's it like when you're flying standby is it fun for you to chat up other pilots and other staff it, or is there like competition in any way uh yeah i mean it's hard i mean when we're flying standby or whatever, you don't know who else is standby apart from often you'll see, you know, at uh, once all the passengers have boarded a flight, they do a kind of call at the end and they'll, and that's when they generally call like rebate staff up to the desk. And, and that's like winning the lottery. Cause you see like three boarding cards, but there's five people and you're like, right, which boarding card has got my name on? <laughs> am I going to get to Fiji tonight or not? Or am I going to have, I mean, that's the problem. So it's a double edged sword in terms of you, you might get on the flight or you might pick a really, really busy flight. And, um, certainly, you know, there's, I've, I've been knocked off a handful of flights, um, all, all around the world and you just have to sort of take it as they come and, and rebook and, and be flexible with your, uh, with your travel plans. But no, when we fly, we don't sort of know who else is on, um, the flight, you know, uh, the other staff or whatever, but they do, the, the crew will know if you're staff or not. And gotcha. generally we look after people. Yeah. So yeah. If, even if you're on another airline, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you, you get looked after very well. Gotcha. So they'll know that you're that you're fine standby, but you're a staff of another airline, and it'll usually be like, "Hey, we're glad you're here," type thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and the, I mean, the pilots tend to uh, pilots tend to be sort of treated as like management, sort of like manager level. So we tend to have a slightly better um, staff travel in terms of, for example, they give us like a first class ticket. Um, which is always, so the cabin crew is like, who, like, why are you in first class? Cause they sort of look at me and, you know, quite young and it's like, why are you in first class? It's like, um, yeah, I'm a pilot. And they go, oh, okay. You know, they, or they think I'm like a manager, like I run the airline or something. It's like, no, it's just because <laughs> there's some archaic rule back in the day that someone negotiated, we should get first class tickets. Uh, yeah. So there, there's some great perks. Absolutely. Um, and actually we get to, um, you know, obviously we do a lot of flying, um, but we often have to position. We do something called deadheading, which is where we will fly to Houston. But instead of me flying the plane, I'm sat there in first class because they need um, a pilot out there to do another service 
for which there is no crew there, the crew rotation, aircraft rotation, various reasons why that might happen. So, so again, that's, that's a nice little perk because you go into work and you'd have no work to do. You, you go straight off to the lounge and put your feet up and it's like, okay, I've got 12 hours now to watch a few films and have a seat. And that's work. I'm getting paid to do that. And that's when you really pinch yourself and you go, wow, that, this is an amazing job when you're getting paid to sit at first class. Yeah. So when you're deadheading, that's, that counts as a flight for you. Like that's one of your whatever 10 flights a month is you deadheading, but you're actually not, you're not piloting, you're not co-piloting, you're just on the flight in first class getting to somewhere where then you'll take the return trip back. That's pretty sweet. Yeah, it's great. And I, and it's often we're, we're going on planes that are not the planes that I normally fly. So because of the route network or uh, it's generally like when we change over seasons uh, so september october we might change the the frequency of flights therefore they need a crew out uh, at an airport um and there was no crew to fly them out so you get positioned out there and you're often doing it on another plane so you know flown on the 787 uh, a380 um, I, I certainly know a few pilots that got to go on like Concord and some interesting flights. So you get to go. Uh, yeah, so it is great. I'm getting paid to fly uh, and not do any work. Yeah. You're like, hey, throw me in that Singapore Airlines suite. I'll take that. That's nice. Um, what is all right? I'm going to ask you this. What annoys you the most about flying commercial airlines? So I, I have a friend who's a pilot and he's like, I would and he actually does now. He, he does fly. Uh, passenger airlines. But before he was like, I'll only ever fly cargo or freight because I don't want to deal with people, right? That inherently there's going to be a lot more things to deal with because there's however many people on a plane and they could talk back on like, you know, boxes of stuff. What annoys you the most that travelers do? Is there something that you're just like, man, I wish people knew this so that then they wouldn't do it? Um, yeah, that's, that's, a that's a good question. I think, um, like hand luggage is always like a major issue. Um, and it's always, I don't know why, but it's always sort of like the smallest people that sort of get on the plane who have like the largest luggage. And I, I don't know how that equates. <laughs> I don't know how, how someone who's sort of four foot has like the, like the largest suitcase, um, and so that tends to sort of hold things up a little bit. Um, people sort of bring too too much sort of hand luggage and and uh, maybe don't pack uh, sort of accordingly. Um, uh, struggling to sort of think of uh, you know sort of pet hates and well, uh, things on, like that. I mean, what- I was going to say on the flip side then, because maybe this is easier. What's something that's happened to you that's been extra nice or extra special that you, that you know you. Uh, you and the crew don't expect that a passenger or someone has done that you thought, hey, this is this is really cool. Um, because I think a lot of people out there, myself included, hearing you and, and flying a decent amount and hearing the stuff that you guys have to go to, if I knew, hey, this is something I could do to make their life easier, better, or just or just a nice touch, that's something I would want to do for, for pilots and staff, but I might not even know what what is something I could do to show my appreciation. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and actually, just going backwards, the worst thing um, that, that we find is basically, and I don't know how this happens, is people that just disappear in the airport. So, you know, the flight's been called and, uh, you know, they're, they're putting the tannoys out and no one can find. And it's like, I don't, like, where do they go? I, I mean, I'm a pilot, so I'm normally quite organized. 
Um, you know, and, and I know what time I've got to be at the gate and I'm there early, but some people, they just, they just sort of get lost. I mean, it's not hot. How do you get lost in the airport? Right. And you're going on holiday for a week, you know, you could at least turn up to it. So, and unfortunately that they'll have like a suitcase on board in the hold, which has already been loaded. So we know that it's not like they didn't even turn up at the airport or their taxi didn't make it. They're in the airport because their bag is on board. They just haven't been able to get to the gate. Um, and so that means we got to like open the cargo up, get all the bins out because the suitcases just don't just get kind of loaded in. They go into those big metal bins, a bit like crates, and they then get loaded on the plane. So we have to take all of those out. So like origami, you got to get all these out. And then you've got to find, you get someone goes in there, a little scanner, scanning all the tags, go find the bag that it is. And you sort of got to get it off. So that's an absolute nightmare is when, yeah, we lose a passenger just, I don't know, because they went to the bar and lost track of time, right? Having a good beer or, or they're in the lounge, you know? So, so that's slightly um, annoying. But I, th I think, um, you know, in the whole, um, it, it's great when we have passengers, um, you know, say thank you. Um, and I think especially for the cabin crew these days, um, I think people just sort of expect that they're just like their waitress and they just sort of press the ding, press the call bell and expect to be kind of like served on when, you know, they could, if you want a drink, you know, just get up and go to the galley and collect, you know, ask for a drink at the galley. You're going to stretch your legs, which is great. You know, get some exercise. So I think, I think people, um, yeah, aren't sort of appreciative enough. I think of the crew, um, and maybe don't show enough, uh, sort of gratitude and, you know, flying is, is, is tough. Um, and, uh, obviously you see like air rage all the time and, you know, people getting on board drunk and, uh, there's a lot of, you know, medical things that happen. There's always like a medical issue that will happen on pretty much every flight. Um, you know, a passenger injuring themselves. And I, and I don't think that generally the public really appreciate the services and the skills and the training, especially for the cabin crew. Um, I guess for pilots, people kind of have this, uh, you know, they know that we're well-trained professional people, but, but for the cabin crew as well, you know, they're there for everyone's safety and they provide, you know, a really important service. And so if a passenger leaves, you know, a box of chocolates at the end of the day for, for the crew, then, you know, that, that's just a small touch and that absolutely, you know, makes a great way to finish a flight. And as I say, just saying, thank you. Um, some airlines, they give frequent flyers like a special gold card. So if you've got one crew member you think has done exceptionally well, they, they give them like a special gold card, um, as, as a means of uh, appreciation. And thanks. So yeah, absolutely. Just, I think appreciation and, and gratitude for the crew is, is a brilliant thing. Yeah. And that, I think too. You mentioned I people kind of take for granted the 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 attendants and the and the cabin crew. I think that's totally true. And they're on the front lines too. Like you guys are up in the front. Not that not that you have it easy. Don't get me wrong. But you're up in the front. These people, the crews on the front lines, like they're dealing with all these little issues over and over and over again. And that's why one of the things that we do, and and I've talked about on the podcast before, so maybe you guys have heard it. Whenever we're going on a flight, especially long haul flights, we don't do it every time we hop on a plane, but especially long haul international flights. Bring a box of chocolates or, or truffles or something. Give it to the cabin crew and just say like, you know, it costs us 10, 10 bucks, maybe 15 bucks max. Just be like, thank you so much for taking care of us because I think it is so overlooked how hard the job is and also just the stuff you have to put up with. I mean, you've got, what, 200, 300 people on a plane all with all these needs. And then, like you mentioned, even the medical stuff that 
that I think a lot of people aren't aware of or don't even see happen most of the times they're on flights. So I'm with you. Treat your treat your crew nice. Tell them to give some to the pilots if they like the pilots. What about with your travel then? Bring it back to all the cool stuff you've got to do because you've been to seven continents. You've seen a ton, ton of stuff. What are some of your favorite spots and experiences that you've been? Uh, well, I mean, my, the favorite place I've been, and again, the seven continent theme is is Antarctica. Um, I'm not just saying that just to sort of name drop because, you know, not everyone gets to go to Antarctica. But it's a trip I did about three years ago on a like expedition boat um, that it, Antarctica is an absolutely beautiful place. Um, and, uh, I think, uh, you know, we all do travel to kind of experience the world and, and learn something. And I think if everyone on earth had a chance to kind of go to Antarctica, um, it would change, you know, everyone's view on the world and, uh, whether it's conservation or global warming or all of these things, you know, Antarctica really is a symbol for so many different things in the world, um, whether it be uh, science, um, the way that nations work together down that, you know, it's not owned by like one country, for example. So Antarctica is just stunningly beautiful. It is it is paradise down there. There's no um, plastic pollution um sort of certainly that I didn't notice, I'm sure there is underwater, Uh, but certainly, you know, when you go to somewhere like Southeast Asia, you know, the beaches are just covered in plastic. Um, And Antarctica, I think, has sort of escaped that because of the way that the ocean currents work. Um, So it is just pristine and and the wildlife down there is amazing. Um, I was stood on deck one day and just this amazing, beautiful mink whale was just swimming like alongside the ship and it was just phenomenal um so yeah antarctica is a really really special place and i would encourage everyone to put it on your um, bucket list because i think it would change your view on the world and on nature and sort of conservation and uh yeah it's it's a really really special place yeah it's just one of those places that isn't replicated anywhere else obviously everywhere is unique that we go to, but you can draw similarities sometimes. Oh, this is like this. Or I had a similar experience here. Well, you're not probably going to have a similar experience to what you have in Antarctica because it's so remote, so isolated, so different um, and treated so different, as you mentioned, by the countries of the world. I think everyone sees it as like, if we can't keep this pristine, then then we're in trouble, right? Like, so yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you to that. On the flip side of the coin, I, it, after you just gave that amazing, beautiful speech <laughs> on Antarctica, I do like to hear places that you've been that maybe you were underwhelmed with. Because I, the, the, and the reason I do this to kind of preface it is, I, I, you know, sometimes I go to places and I and I'm like, oh, I, I think it's gonna be awesome, and it's it's just okay. It's not even bad, and I feel a little bummed out. Like, am I doing something wrong? Am I a bad traveler? I have people come back. My buddy said on his honeymoon, he's like, I didn't really love Mendoza. Like, am am I doing something wrong? I'm like, no, you have to have these places that maybe don't light you up as much as someone else. Because then when you have the experiences like you had in Antarctica or I've had in in the country of Georgia, that's when it becomes even more special because you, you know how much better it is than maybe somewhere else. So have you been to a few places that, that might've been a little underwhelming for you? Uh, yeah, I, I, I definitely have had sort of travel experiences that um, didn't, you know, meet my expectations or sort of fell short. I'm, I'm struggling to think off the top of my head 
um some good examples of those because i generally sort of focus on the ones that i really enjoyed and, and had amazing experiences but you're right you know but there's always an angle that you can look at um even in a sort of travel experience that isn't going so well it doesn't meet your expectations. there's always different ways to look at somewhere whether it's the culture the people or just the you know nature the landscapes um but yeah i i'm struggling off the top of my head to think of a good uh, example I always think the cool thing about it too, even because there's been a few places I've been um, that I that I have felt that way, right? And um, and when I've been there, I maybe I didn't enjoy it as much, but to me at least, I think I want to go back there, right? Like it it, it actually spurs me to want to go back to maybe experience it again to say, hey, maybe the maybe the issue is you, or not even me, but just the situation that I was in at that time. Um, so yeah, there's always ways to look at that. What about things that you've done, because you mentioned some stuff traveling, uh, saving money while traveling as a pilot. There's a lot of ways. What about things that you've done that maybe anyone could kind of do that you use? Hey, I'm going to save money this way because then it's going to allow me to splurge on something else. Uh, yeah, I mean, credit cards. I, I mean, I know, obviously, Travis, you you obviously cover credit cards on, on your blog. And that is absolutely, you know, number one thing to do. I always say to people, um, you know, look at what your current credit card gives you. Your you know, credit cards obviously give cash back and maybe points. But if you love to travel and the value of whether it be air miles or air points or whatever system you want to kind of use, if that is of higher value than just a bit of cash back, I always say, you know, get the points because they're so much more valuable. You're going to get so much uh, better experiences, um, whether it's a discount on flights or an upgrade or, you know, it pays for the whole experience. Absolutely. Make sure you've got a decent travel, uh, a decent credit card that gives you some really good uh, points uh, and air miles. I use, even though I'm a pilot, I use one. I have an American Express um and yeah i love it it's great um it's not so great obviously for the for the companies that you're spending your card with because they take like three percent or something crazy but that's how they make the money to fund you know cheap flights and so yes even though i have um standby uh travel benefits and things like that i think i have about half a million uh air miles nice uh, so you're still working you know, the system a, still working I, I, the system I, absolutely because it was either that or I could sort of make maybe a hundred pounds or whatever, 200 bucks a year in cash back and half a million air miles is I can go sort of around the world twice for that in first class. So that is worth so much more value than just some cash back over the years. So absolutely. Number one tip, get a credit card that gives you points. Yep. Yep. And the thing I like about that as well is that then you're, not you're forced to use your points for travel, but for me, when I'm taking a flight, like when I'm taking a flight and I'm sitting there and I paid five bucks or 15 bucks, or if I'm going to Europe, maybe $55 in tax and fees, that's so much better like for me than saying, oh, well, maybe I would have got $500 cash back and I could have bought this. Like, I don't want that, right? Because inevitably that $500 cash back would have been spent on something else, you know, down the road that's not as important. So I'm with you. Travel credit cards, guys. Even Mark the Pilot is telling you to do that. Um, what about the biggest travel mishap that you've ever had? 
Uh, yeah, I'm trying to again trying to sort. Uh, there are there are quite a few that that I've had um, along the year along the years. Yeah, absolutely. Um, whether it be kind of like lost bags or um, I don't know, getting in a dodgy taxi. Um, but I, I've struggled to sort of think of a, a really bad mishap that I've had, and that probably comes from the fact that I tend to um, be quite cautious, you know, when I travel. Um, as a lot of planning goes involved into my trips. And you know, that's why I kind of set up a blog, flyingandtravel.com, so that I can sort of present to the world, here are some really well thought out itineraries and travel plans that are kind of like well executed, um, that, that sort of keep people out of mischief and following into sort of typical pitfalls of uh, of travel. But I mean, some, some of the... I, it's sort of, I think, uh, yeah, the worst example for me is probably when I've been, uh, you know, caught by someone uh, in terms of, you know, they've been a little bit fraudulent or naughty or, you know, especially with taxis in Southeast Asia. I mean, they are, they are crazy. And, and there's so many that I've just gone, stop the car, I'm getting out and I'm walking away. Just, I, you know, you just got to because they're, they're just on the hunt for sort of tourists there to, um, yeah, absolutely extort. Um, and the, I think I, w- I had like Google Maps out. So I knew where I, you know, it was getting from like, I think it was Bangkok Airport to a hotel that was maybe 20 minutes away. Um, and the taxi driver was driving in completely the wrong direction, you know, literally the other direction. He was going west when I should have been going east. And I had the maps up out. And I was like, well, I, I'm going to give it two minutes, right? Because I was thinking maybe he knows something. But I, you know, maybe there's a special road that's a little bit quicker. But no, kept going straight on, you know. And when I questioned him, um, he was like, oh, yeah, sorry, sorry, sorry. Immediately does a U-turn. I was like, you've been caught out. I'm getting out. You know, that's it. Drop me off in the middle of nowhere and I'll get, I'll get another taxi, thanks. But yeah, I mean, I've taken like a taxi in, I think I was in um, Argentina. And you know those taxi meters where they have like the little horse running? And this horse was just like sprinting and the numbers were just going up. It was like I hit the jackpot on like a slot machine. I was like, this is crazy. We've only gone around the corner and you already want like 100 quid. I mean, this is ridiculous. I've stopped the car and getting out. So yeah, there's people out there, you know, who... Uh, who do that uh, for a living, obviously quite successfully. And, and it's, that's the worst start to a trip. Um, yeah, I remember my parents telling me the story where they went to Prague. Um, and again, they were getting a um, airport taxi to hotel downtown. And sort of they're driving along the motorway and uh, the, the car sort of slowly pulls off to the side and the taxi driver is sort of saying, oh, it's kaput, it's kaput, it's not working. Um, and sorry, really bad accent there. And um, yeah, so they sort of get out, feel really sorry for the taxi driver because his car's like broken down. So they like pay him by what, what's on the meter and give him some more because they felt really sorry for him. Taxi driver gets in, drives off. That's it. You know, this is what they do. You know, there are some scamsters out there yeah. that will pull any trick on you. So, and, and taxis are always the worst, which is great. I mean, people, I, I mean, Uber, you know, that's another whole conversation. But the fact that you can book a taxi on, you know, a mobile device, and this works all around the world now. I was using it in Rio de Janeiro a couple of months ago. You know, the language barrier, when you want to say, I want to go here, and it's quite hard, you know, if you're not speaking the right language, and if you want to change your destination en route, you know, you can just do it on your phone very quickly and say, right, now take me here and, you know, no issues and, and, and great value. So, yeah, you know, the way that technology is now helping us, yeah, 
from from getting scammed on taxis is brilliant. I, I will tell you though, if if I am going to get scammed, I want it to at least lead to a story that I can tell on my podcast. Because yesterday, very quick story, I tried to buy a concert ticket on Facebook and got scammed out of forty bucks. I wasn't even mad. I was just disappointed that I thought this isn't even a story I could tell on the podcast. Now I have, so I guess I'm 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 getting back at them, right? But it is. It's like I'm like at least scam me when I'm traveling. So that I have this like story to tell later, not just someone who says they have a ticket to a concert and then never sends me an email. But either way, I'm with you. Um, the taxi thing is is hilarious, and I've been, I've been scammed as you mentioned multiple times. And luckily, it's usually in countries that are pretty cheap. So I'm like, all right, someone needs the money more than me. Not not to say I'm not pissed off, but I you know at least it's you know it's okay. I can, I can manage it. What do you have coming up in the pipeline that people should be looking out for? Uh, yeah, so um, flying and travel, we, we do a lot of uh, content and places that I go around the world and information and, and really just trying to inspire people. And, and we try and bring as much value and provide you know really great itineraries for people to follow. Um, and, and I'll probably throw this straight back at you, Travis, and say, well, you know, there's so many people, fear of flying is like, you know, the second biggest fear in the Western world, right? You had a fear of flying when you started out. You know, I am here to kind of serve people and, and, and provide, you know, a unique insight. So, you know, if you've got um, readers and listeners that, that you know, want to do a Q&A or something like that, I would be delighted to come back and answer, you know, specific questions that people have got about flying, turbulence, when the seatbelt sign goes on and and all these sort of things. So I'd love to do that if that's something you're interested in. Yeah, that would be awesome. Guys, if you're interested, I certainly have tons of more questions I could ask about flying, like the logistics that we didn't even really get into in this podcast. Let me know. You could tweet me at Pack of Pizza. You could get a hold of Mark. Let us know. That'd be fun to do, like a Q&A with a pilot. Of yeah, if you're nervous or or just even if you're not nervous but you want to know what to expect, maybe you haven't flown a lot, maybe you haven't flown internationally, um, that would be that would be really cool because there is a lot of stuff that goes on in people's heads. Now that I've done it a lot, I've I've gotten over it and I'm not as worrisome. But there is a lot of stuff out there. I remember flying with my buddy uh, one of his first flights a couple months ago and he was asking me all these questions that I wouldn't even think about because I'm just, I'm just like, I don't know. I get on the plane. I'll do what I normally do. But then you're like, oh yeah, if I haven't flown a lot, this would be something that I would want to know ahead of time. So yeah, let us know guys if you want to do that. That'd be super fun, Mark. Um, and, and I appreciate you throwing that out there and joining me today and giving us a peek of what it looks like for the, uh, the men and women who sit way up in the front there. Um, and also just providing some great advice on, on traveling cheaper and better and you know, providing the resource that you do so that people can see this as a love that we both have of like, this is something that really is going to enrich your life if you want to get out there and do it and, and providing them actionable advice on how to do that. Remind people one more time, how can they find you social media? What's the name of the site? And of course, we'll link it all up on the show notes too, guys. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm at flying and travel. Those are my two passions in life. Obviously, being a pilot, flying, giving frequent flyer tips, and the travel. You know, I've traveled to seven continents now. I've I've been so many different countries, had some amazing experiences, and I'm here to inspire people to go to other countries and and follow those following those itineraries and those experiences. So yeah, you can find me at flyingandtravel.com, and I'm on social media like everyone else is. Uh, my handle is at flyingandtravel. 
keeps it nice and simple. I love that. Yeah, it's super easy. You don't have to remember anything crazy. What does Mark love? Flying and travel. That's how you find them. We will link all that stuff up in the show notes, guys, as well. Also, don't forget, if you're not a pilot and you can't get on standby all the time, but you want cheap flights, we've got a new app that's out, Jetto, J-E-T-T-O. You can download that on the App Store. You can download that on Google Play Store. However, you, whatever type of device you use, you can find the Jetto app. So check that out. Totally free to download. And our goal is to get those cheap flights in your hands so that you can get out there and travel just like Mark and I talked again about. Mark, thanks again. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you, Travis. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in today for your continued support that makes us to this day the number one rated travel podcast. And until next time, happy free travels. I'll show you Paris The most popular air route in the world, with over 13 million people flying it per year, is between Seoul and Jeju Island in South Korea. And if you were able to get that answer without looking it up, well then you are a true travel nerd. By the way, the second most popular is Sydney to Melbourne in Australia.